This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. My folks are getting up there in age where I'm starting to sketch out a game plan with my wife as to like how to take care of them when they can't take care of themselves. But I'll be real, these game plans don't even go near some of the real painful hardships that come with caring for your parents. Here and now, Deepa Fernandez spoke with author and physician Sandeep Johar about his book, My Father's Brain, and it's about caring for his father as his father descended into dementia. And he talks about the difficult truths he had to really confront in order to take care of his dad. And one of them was lying to his dad. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. According to the Centers for Disease Control, almost 6 million people in the United States over the age of 65 have Alzheimer's disease or related dementias. And by 2060, that number is expected to rise to 14 million. But the numbers don't tell the story of the devastating effects Alzheimer's has not only on those who suffer from it, but also on their loved ones. That's the subject of a beautiful new book by author and physician Sandeep Johar. It's called My Father's Brain, and he joins us now from NPR's New York studios. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Sandeep, your father was a scientist, an accomplished and really smart man, As it becomes clearer that your dad's suffering from memory loss, possibly dementia, what were the signs in his behavior that you noticed? The first signs were he couldn't remember what he'd had for lunch. He couldn't remember the code that we had set up on his uh, new safe, which was my mother's birthday. So that was really the first sort of telltale sign that something was wrong. You know, and some of that memory loss, I think, it might be really tempting to just say, well, that's what happens with age. Did that seem like a possibility to you and your siblings? Yes. We were in denial, frankly. The fact is that, you know, it was really a question of degree. You know, you can forget the name of someone when you're at my father's age, you know, in his 70s. Uh, but to forget that you ever knew someone or to forget that you had had lunch They were sort of Mm. more serious signs of memory loss. And you're a cardiologist, and so is your brother. Yet you realized, as you say in the book, you didn't really know much about what was happening in the brain as Alzheimer's took over. Why did you think knowing what was happening to your dad's brain might help? Alzheimer's and caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's is extremely frustrating. It's really easy to get angry, impatient, you know, when you don't know what's going on in the brain, when you don't have this sort of neurological script, it's doubly frustrating. So for me, I didn't really initially understand that the Alzheimer's affects the part of the brain that encodes memories, um, 
that's where it starts. Then it moves to the part of the brain that processes emotions. So my father's sort of eventual violent outbursts, which just seemed so irrational that made me so frustrated. I think it's just important to know what's going on in the brain. That's That was one of my goals in writing mm. the book, is to explain the brain, memory, and sort of the history and science of brain degeneration, along with the personal sort of wrenching chronicle of what happened. Mm. I mean, it, it's very powerful. And the honesty in your book about the raw and, and sometimes ugly side of caring for someone you love with dementia you know, there were things that happened that were horrifying to you, probably would have horrified your dad, and, and you mm. wrote about them. Could you tell us just one of those examples and why you chose to write about it? My father eventually came to love his caregiver, but he couldn't accept certain basic facts that, for example, we have to pay her. He would say, well, she should work for free, or she should, we're going to give her room and board. And, and when he would find out that we had to pay her, and I would tell him I needed for a long time to tell him the truth. Dad, we are paying her. We're going to continue to pay her. He would react very violently. He would throw orange juice at her face or once he tried to hit her with a with a wire hanger. I mean, very, very disturbing stuff that mm. was so out of character to the sort of gentle man that he was. And that also brings up a really interesting thing that you grapple with in the book. And it's kind of the issue of truth versus... I don't want to say lying, but I guess mm -hmm. it is lying, just not telling the truth. And your siblings seemed a lot more comfortable because he would forget sure. whether it was about whether you were paying the caregiver or whether your mother had passed away. They yeah. felt comfortable when he asked for your mother saying, oh, she's coming. And you had to tell him the truth, but you ended up realizing and you too told him untruths. Talk to me about that journey. You know, for the longest time, I needed to feel like he was still a part of my world. And for me, as a son, that meant that I leveled with him. Also, as a doctor, I was trained in a paradigm where, you know, you, you level with patients. You tell them what's going on. It felt that it was um, degrading his dignity to lie to him. But, you know, eventually I came to understand that it's different if you're lying for your own benefit or you're lying for someone else's benefit. And he couldn't process so many things. And to tell him over and over that dad, mom died, and nothing we say is going to bring her back, eventually you realize as a caregiver that it's just not worth it. And it's cruel. And, uh, you know, it took me some time to get to that point. But I think a lot of caregivers understand intuitively that caring for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia means that you have to give up your conceptions of, of truth and, mm. and a different conception of dignity arises, validating the person's reality. Sandeep, it also struck me that what happened to your family might be happening to many families in dealing with dementia. Yeah. That weird place that so many of us are, caring for aging parents, caring for growing children, being maybe spouses or partners, it's sort of like um, what I wrote in the book that there's like a sort of triple point in water where it's a gas, a liquid, and a solid all at the same point. And that's the kind of the point that I found myself where I was a, a son caring for his aging father. I was a father to my own children, and I was a spouse to my wife. And all those 
roles were in this sort of uneasy equilibrium. Yeah. What kind of help is out there for people in your situation? There's very little help. And dementia is an epidemic, and it's coming for all of us. It's coming for us as patients or as caregivers. And out of the $200 billion that is devoted to dementia care annually, the government covers $11 billion. The rest of it is covered mm. by families. You know, we fortunately had some resources to hire someone to help us, but there was still so much work. And I struggle to yeah. fathom what families go through when they don't have any help. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that was not named in your book, but but I definitely took from it, you were lucky to have a caregiver who was Indian, who understood mm-hmm. your father. I wonder how important, even as the nation starts to grapple with the kind of care that people will need going forward, it just struck me so many times if the caregiver wasn't Indian, I wonder if they would have stayed. No. The fact that she understood the culture that he grew up in was so important. If we hadn't found someone Indian, I don't think my father would have accepted the care. I think he would have struggled and fought it even more than he did. But yeah, it's very hard to find these days. And I travel the country talking to families who are struggling with this. And one of the biggest problems is finding help and affording help. One of the things I found fascinating, Sandeep, was that you not only traveled the country, you went around the world looking at other examples. I I know where my family is in Australia, one of the first moves is to put in-home care by the government in people's homes to help them. You found an example in Holland. Tell us about that. It's a fascinating dementia village. There's always this sort of struggle in elder care, dementia care, between sort of autonomy and security. We want to keep people safe. We don't want them to wander. We're afraid they'll fall. But in this dementia village, people are allowed to walk around. They can go to the fountain. They can go to the gardens. And there's always someone around who can help them get back home. But the staff are sort of hidden Posing as like gardeners and people working at the coffee shops. Exactly. Do you think it could work here? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there are villages like the Hogwake, which is the name of the village in the Netherlands, that are starting up in this country in San Diego, Atlanta. You know, it also raises a sort of larger question of truth telling. You know, when I was there, I sort of walking around and seeing these gardeners pretending to garden, but they're really sort of caretakers and looking out for people. It sort of struck me like a film set, but it's a small price to pay for allowing people to live with dignity and autonomy at the end. You know, I want to end with the moral dilemma that struck you at the end of your father's life, and and I think it happened kind of in his last week, and it was yeah. the question of whether to keep him on a saline drip. Yes. He'd, he'd stopped eating, he'd stopped drinking, he was getting close to death, and and stopping the saline would have hastened his death. But yes. you were resistant to doing that, even though he, your own father, had made it clear in writing to your brother years earlier that if he was ever to be in this state, he did not want to be kept alive. Right. But you struggled with it. And I found fascinating that one of the things you said was you had just eaten a dosa with him. You'd just taken him out to eat some days before. And, and there was some simple pleasure in that. Yeah. Cognitive impairment and basic pleasure or happiness are not inconsistent. The person who's cognitively impaired, their perspective changes. It maybe shrinks. My father still found a lot of pleasure in 
basic things like having dosa with me or having a mango lassi or eating ice cream. When he wrote his directive, it was when he was a active scientist, you know, writing for the top journals in the world. And of course he didn't want to end up in that state. But when he did end up in that state, he didn't seem unhappy to me. He never told me, look, I want to end this. I think we as caregivers, his children, were struggling a lot more with his dementia than he was by that point. Sandeep Jahar's book is My Father's Brain, Life in the Shadow of Alzheimer's. Sandeep, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply.